Jude 11 is our text. Let's look together at God's word this morning. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feast. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea foaming up their own shame, Wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lust, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. The book of Jude, as we have already noted, is one of the shortest books of the Bible, Uh, 25 verses make up this tiny letter that seems to be tucked away at the end of the New Testament. But it's a sermon. Jude is delivering this letter like a sermon. And it's very pastoral in nature. What I mean by that is ungodly intruders have made their way into the church. And Jude is very concerned. He's very concerned about these intruders undermining the gospel and corrupting the one true faith that had been delivered to them. So as a pastor, Jude is lovingly but strongly warning this church of the danger that these intruders present. This is perhaps an important place to stop and remind us that shepherding the flock of God through the dangerous threat of wolves are a big part of the responsibilities of pastors. Paul said in Acts chapter 20, in speaking to a a group of pastors, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. I mean, take care of yourself, he says, something that we as pastors often get out of order at times. We're so busy taking care of everyone else that we fail to take care of ourselves. But but he says if you're going to take care of everybody else, you've got to make sure you're taking care of yourself. Uh, Take heed to yourself, then to all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you an overseer, a leader, to shepherd them, to feed the church which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So he says wolves are going to come from the outside. Then in verse 30, Paul says, and also they're going to come from among yourself. Men will rise up in the church speaking perverse 
things for the purpose of drawing away disciples to follow them. And then in verse 31 he says, therefore, watch, watch. So pastors are to lead the flock of God, of which they are to be overseers. They are to feed the church of God with the word of God. It's why we gather together every Sunday and Wednesday. We come to eat the meal of God's word. And then they are to protect the flock. Protect the flock from wolves, whether they come from the outside or the inside. We are to speak up. We are to confront. We are to warn. We are to encourage the people to avoid these intruders. Avoid these woes. So what Jude is doing is not out of line here. Nor is he overreacting. It is his responsibility as a pastor to speak up, to confront the threats, and to warn the people of the potential danger. Now the way Jude is doing this, starting in verse 5, is by brilliant exposition. In in other words, this... Here is a good model for how to prepare and preach a biblical sermon. In fact, in my studies of this over the last couple of weeks, I've just made some side notes for these seminars that I'll occasionally travel and do with other pastors and preachers on expository preaching that I'm going to use this text to to, to show what expositional preaching looks like. We we looked at this last uh, week, or actually the week before last, Uh, Jude introduces his first sermon in verses 3 and 4. And then in verses 5, 6, and 7, he expounds on Old Testament scriptures, examples by showing the audience how this has all happened before. And then in verses 8, 9, and 10, he applies those scriptures in verses 5, 6, and 7 to their immediate experiences. That's biblical preaching. That's that's Bible exposition. Introducing it, uh, taking the scripture. In this case, Jude is taking Old Testament scripture. And then he is applying it to the needs of that present day church. And so that that was sermon number one. Now as we come to verse 11, he does the exact same thing. So using our imaginations a little bit this morning, we can see Jude coming back after a vacation away out of town. He's a little bit more sunburnt. Something happened to his beard and he can barely talk. But when he comes back to the pulpit that Sunday, he, he comes to verses 11 through 16. This is, if you will, part two of his sermon. Again, the model for a biblical sermon is followed. Verse 11, he introduces the sermon. In verse 11, he also expounds on Old Testament scriptures and examples. And then verses 12 through 16, he applies those scriptures, those examples, to their immediate experiences. You might say, well, wait a minute, Pastor, I missed the introduction. Where was the, mis- where was the introduction? Well, it's there. It's just short. A lot shorter than mine this morning. Verse 11 He says in the first three words, this is his introduction to part two of his sermon, woe to them. Woe to them. Woe to these ungodly intruders that I talked about last Sunday. Woe to these dangerous rebels that I'm going to talk about this Sunday. Judgment is coming for them. Judgment is coming for them. Again, think about the strong and solemn warning that Jude is pastorally giving. He's saying here that a divine woe of judgment is coming for those who mislead God's people. 
Whether that's through their books or their blogs or their television sermons or their pulpit charades or their small group sessions, whatever the case may be, a woe of divine judgment is coming for anyone who misleads the people of God. Woe to them, Jude says. Woe to them. So today's text takes a slightly different inferences than our previous text. For, for example, verse, verses 5 through 10, Jude identified these people who creep into the church. We call them intruders, creepers, whatever you want to do. They creep into the church and they are distorting and denying the essential truths of the gospel. Now coming into verse 11 through 16, you get the sense that Jude is saying, hey, I want you to know that these people are going to seem like nice people. But they're very dangerous people. They may even walk in with a Bible on their chest for the first few Sundays. Smiling, singing, they're going to seem real nice, like real, real nice people. But down inside, they are dangerous. They are dangerous rebels. It's worth noting that the people Jude describes in his letter are not always that easy to spot. If they were, he would not have to write this letter. That's the point. If it was easy to spot these intruders, these rebels, then perhaps we would know what to look for and how to do it. But, but, but it's not always that easy. Through it, however, we are learning how to spot them. But if the Bible did not warn us about these type of people, we simply would not know. So, so that's what he's doing here. Nice people, nice people, but dangerous rebels. Dangerous. So, so three, three headers with part two of Jude's sermon. The first header is this. He wants us to see the correlation of church rebels to the rebellion of the past. He wants us to see the correlation of church rebels to the rebellion of the past. Again, this is his exposition. And his exposition involves three Old Testament characters in verse number 11. You see them there? Look at it there in your Bible. We see Cain, which is talked about in Genesis chapter 4. We see Balaam, who is talked about in Numbers 22, 23, and 24. And then we see Korah, who is talked about in Numbers chapter 16. All three of these notorious individuals have one major characteristic in common. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. They all have the same characteristic in common. What is it? Rebellion. Rebellion. Rebellion was their modus operandi. It's their MO, their, their mode of operating. So Jude's message here is that the rebels who are threatening the church today are of the same ilk of those rebels in the past. They're a lot like Cain. They're a lot like Balaam. They're, they're a lot like Korah. Well, the question for us as Bible students is what in the world does that mean? Notice again how he puts it in verse 11. Look there in your Bibles. It says, they have gone the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. And they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. So the way of Cain, the heir of Balaam, and the rebellion of Korah. Let's, let's think about the way of Cain for a moment. What's significant about the way of Cain? Well, Cain knowingly and willingly rebelled against God's word. Remember, his brother Abel made a blood sacrifice to God out of his flock of sheep, as, by the way, was prescribed for him to do. 
while Cain made an offering of fruits and grains and vegetables. He, he didn't follow the prescription that God had assigned. Cain thought that his way was more beautiful than God's way. He worked hard for what he sacrificed and ignored God's word in order to prove that the work of his very hands was good enough. And so not only did he reject Cain's sacrifice, that is God, God rejected Cain's sacrifice, but he brought judgment upon Cain's life. This is the way of Cain. It is knowingly and willingly rebelling against God. It's thinking that our way of doing things is better than the way God has prescribed for it to be. That's what the way of Cain is. It is rebellion against God's word. And that's the problem with these dangerous rebels in the church. They understand very clearly the standards that God expects, but they have chosen not to accept them. Their mindset is surely there's no way that God will truly judge like his word says he will. You you mean to tell me that God is actually going to judge people eternally to hell? No. No, he's not going to do that. Let's do it our way. Let's do it our way. There's no way in the end that God will reject good efforts on our part. There's no way in the end he will not appreciate all of the fruits and vegetables, all the things that we've done with our own hands and have now presented him and said, look, look, Lord, Lord, have we not done all of these things for you? This is the way of Cain. The way of Cain says my way is acceptable. My way is better. Then we have the heir of Balaam. Okay, Cain knowingly and willingly rebelled against God's word. But Balaam, Balaam here, he knowingly and willingly rebelled against God's holiness. And not only did he rebel, church, but he encouraged others to rebel also. It was Balaam, he was a teacher in Israel, a prophet. And one day a foreign king, a man by the name of Balak, he was the king of Moab, He came to Balaam and he offered him a large sum of money to turn against Israel by encouraging them in his teaching to abandon God's law and give themselves over to immorality with women outside of God's covenant people. At first, Balaam resisted. But over time, he couldn't pass up the temptation to fill his pockets with so much money. Greed got the best of him, and he rebelled against God's holy holiness. And he did so by advising the Israelite men to go ahead and live it up, indulge into all sorts of gross sexual immorality, do what feels good with whoever you want, however you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. And he was doing it to make money. Balaam was afterward met by death. And his death was an act of divine judgment for his rebellion. What does that have to do with rebels today? Well, the heir of Balaam is a warning about those who, even in positions of leadership, 
They willingly lay aside God's word and teach something entirely different. Especially if it benefits them monetarily. Paul called this teachers with itching ears. If they like it, that's what I'm going to give them. If they don't like it, then we're sure not going to touch that. And so the warning here was about those rebels who belittle God's holiness by encouraging God's people to embrace all forms of promiscuity, unbiblical behavior, by closing their Bibles and giving their religious psychology. This is the error of Balaam. It's filled with greed and corruption. Teachers with itching ears. People who knowingly and willingly rebel against God's holiness. And then we have the rebellion of Korah. Korah. So so again, follow the sequence here. Cain rebelled against God's word. Balaam rebelled against God's holiness. Korah. Korah knowingly and willingly rebelled against God's structured authority. He rebelled against God's structured authority. So what did Korah do? Korah, as we read about in number 16, he instigated an all-out revolt against the leader of Israel, who at that time was Moses. Moses was God's chosen leader. A structure of authority had been put into place for the people to follow. But Korah, well, he wasn't having it. He was against it. He hated the fact that the Levites were to exercise spiritual authority over the people, but but he could not. He didn't have a say. He had no decision-making power. And so over time, he began to falsely accuse Moses of being arrogant, a bad leader, an arrogant leader. He even quoted scripture to make himself look godly and sincere. He coerced 250 others to join him in standing against Moses in figuratively standing against God's structure of leadership for Israel. Why? Because he wanted to be in charge. He wanted to make the decisions. He wanted to be the authority. At the very least, he wanted an equal democracy in God's divinely structured order. But that's not what God established. We may enjoy democracy in terms of where we live as a country, but that's not how God has structured pastoral authority, church government. So God calls the earth to open up in that moment, and it swallowed Korah. And all of his rebellious co-conspirators, it swallowed them alive. All because they rebelled. They revolted. They stood against God's authority. I think the rebellion of Korah is strong and clear. It's a warning about standing against God's structured authority, wherever that may be. In the home, in marriage, God has structure. God has given a place of authority. He has given headship. Same thing within the church. God has a divine order, headship, structure, authority, leadership in the church. 
And God has chosen a structure for his people to follow in all of those places. So you and I, we have to watch out for the chorus. The chorus who arrogantly stand against God's chosen authority. And desire for us to join them in their rebellion. Correlation is clear to me. Rebellion is at the heart of problem makers in the church. That's what he's trying to say. Problem makers in the church are full of rebellion. They are wolves dressed in sheep's clothing, but they are subtly ravaging the flock of God. They rebel against God's word, they rebel against God's holiness, and they rebel against his authority. These rebels, Jude says, are dangerous. They're dangerous. All right, that's his exposition. Now he moves to the application, and this is the second header I want you to to write down the character of dangerous rebels and their assault on the church. The character of dangerous rebels and their assault on the church. Now, this is where Jude gets into the application of the sermon. He wants us to see that the rebels of the scripture are embodied by the rebels of the church. And he gets very specific about the character of these rebels and how they can assault God's people. In fact, there are several of them, eight, that I'm going to mention to you as quickly as possible. Number one, first he wants us to know that these rebels are bad spots in our fellowship. They're stains in our gathering. Again, don't take my word for it. Look at your Bibles. Look at what it says in verse 12. These people, these rebels, they are spots in your love feast. Love feast. I don't, I don't know why, but as I'm studying this over the last couple of weeks, this phrase, love feast, struck me so differently. What does he mean here? Love feast. Through a little bit of study, I discovered that the first Christians sometimes called their church gatherings love feast. We call ours, in modern terms, worship services. Welcome to this gathering of worship of the Laurel Baptist Church. Perhaps Jude would stand up and say, welcome to this love feast of the fill-in-the-blank church. So th- these were their church gatherings. And I love this identifier, by the way. Think about it. Are you going to the love feast this week? Are you coming with me to the love feast? Will you meet me on Wednesday at the love feast? The love feast. Love, love, love. It's true, isn't it? Our routine presence, or lack thereof, in the weekly gathering of the church, it reveals our love for God. It reveals our love for one another. It also shows us our true hunger for God and His Word. The problem is that some were turning their love feast into places of division. They were more like Bitter buffets. 
and they were love feasts. The Greek word that is used here for spot is spilos. Spilos. It can be translated so many different ways. It can be translated spot, as we see here, spot in our fellowship. It can be translated stain or blemish. If you're using the English Standard Version, you'll see another word that it's translated as. It's the word reef. Reef, R-E-E-F, reef. Now, that, that ought to help us understand what he's saying here. He says, be careful about the hidden reefs at your love feast. The hidden reefs. One commentator said, close proximity to such people are dangerous and should be avoided just like a sailor keeps his ship clear of the reef. Okay, they're spots. They're bad spots. They're bad spots. Don't get too close to that spot. It's a stain. It's a hidden reef in the ocean that if your boat gets too close, if your ship gets too close, that reef is going to destroy you. When rebels are present in our church gatherings, they present to us a severe danger, and they are a bad stain to our loving, unified fellowship. So that's how he begins. He says, I want you to know the character of these people. They are a bad spot in the church. They're a stain to the gathering. They're a blemish to the fellowship. They are hidden reefs that if you get too close to them, they will tear your vessel apart. All right, that's the first thing he says. Now, let me give you the other ones a lot quicker. Two, he says they are self-serving and fearless. They are self-serving and fearless. Verse 12 says they feast with you but without fear, serving only themselves. So instead of seeing the church as a place to care for one another, these people care only about themselves. They don't come to serve others. The only reason they're here or might leave here is because they care about being served themselves. Their church life is about their self-importance, their ego, their desires. And any effort to build up others in their life is practically non-existent. Now, what does he mean by fearless here? Well, the fearlessness is a reference to the fact that they feel no conviction about these desires. They feel no conviction about these actions, that their whole church life is based about themselves, and they don't even feel bad about that. Their whole ministries are about their ego, and it's never once crossed their mind that that's a problem. In fact, J.A. Bingle said, A sinner is bad, but one who sins without fear is worse. That's a thought-provoking statement. A sinner is bad, but one who sins without fear is worse. And that's what these rebels are embodied by. They're self-serving, and they're not even ashamed of it. They feel no conviction about it. All right, number three, they are empty and fruitless. They are empty and fruitless. Verse 12 says, they're clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. 
Clouds without water. Clouds without water. Just think about that imagery. They talk a big talk, but they don't actually produce anything. In fact, the tragic indictment is that Jude calls them twice dead here. Those who do not bear fruit, these barren trees, these fruitless trees, they will experience two deaths. And he's he's using spiritual language here. He's talking about the eternal judgment of the second death. John 15 talks about it is our fruit that shows whether or not we are in Christ. And so to be without fruit, to be barren means that we're not only going to die once, we're going to die twice. And he wants us to know how dangerous these rebels are. They don't even have the life of Christ in them. They talk a big talk, but there's no fruit. They're empty. Number four, they're chaotic and erratic. They're chaotic and erratic. Verse 13, they are raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. In other words, their empty and fruitless nature, known only to God, known only to God perhaps, but to others, they seem to produce a lot of noise. Raging waves, something that can't be ignored, something that can't go unnoticed. That's what these rebels are. They make a lot of noise. They talk a big talk. They won't get in a crowd without being noticed. But once they get you, they pull you into their chaos. They pull you into their erratic behavior. They pull you into their unpredictable ways. They're chaotic and erratic, empty and fruitless, self-serving and fearless. They're bad spots in our fellowship. Number five, they are grumblers and fault finders. Verse 16 is where we're at. They are grumblers, complainers. Now Spurgeon said it really well here. He said, you know the sort of people alluded to by grumblers and fault finders. He said, nothing ever satisfies them. They are discontent even with the gospel. The bread of heaven must be cut into three pieces and served on a dainty napkin or else they will not eat it. They will pick holes in every preacher's coat. And if the great high priest himself were there, they would find fault with even the color of the stones in his breastplate. They grumble, they find fault. They grumble, they find fault. These are the people that you go out to lunch with on Sunday. Instead of talking about how blessed they were by the presence of God, they always want to talk about the problems that they found that day. Grumblers, fault finders, and every church contains such people, and they're dangerous, dangerous rebels. And then, number six, they are consumed by their lust. Verse 16, they walk according to their own lust. Now, I'm not going to prolong this because we've already noted it. Their desires trump all other desires, even God's desires. Instead of following his heart, they follow their own heart. And then number seven. They boast about themselves, and they flatter others. They boast about themselves, and they flatter others. Verse 16, their mouth is filled with great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. They say more about themselves than they do even about the word of God. They're the hero of every story. They're the standard for every rule. 
They are so good with their words that they know exactly what to say. Telling people what they want to hear in order to gain influence and power over them. This is how rebels assault the church. And what's interesting to me here is, is that the majority of these characteristics have to do with the mouth. Go back and look at them for yourself tonight. The main issue is that they talk too much. They say things that come from a heart of hypocrisy. They're dangerous. And Jude tells us, steer clear of them. Here's the final header. It brings us back to verses 14 and 15. And that is simply the coming judgment of God on all rebellion. The coming judgment of God on all rebellion. Verse 14, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Four times. I have this marked in my Bible. Four times Jude uses the word all. And four times he uses the word ungodly. Seems like he's trying to make a point here. And perhaps it was because these rebels were denying the reality of God's judgment. Or maybe they were even suggesting that there's no way God's love could actually bring himself to judge sinners, regardless of what Scripture says. There's a whole lot of people who think that. You mean to tell me that a loving God in heaven is actually going to do this? You mean to tell me that a loving God of heaven who's full of grace, mercy, and love is not going to save everybody? So Jude makes it clear, regardless of what you think, God's severe judgment will be poured out on all ungodliness. All of it. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns, he will execute judgment on all rebellion. All of it. We get this from Isaiah 66 as well, very similar to what is being quoted here in the book of Jude. For behold, Isaiah 66, 15 says, The Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord will be many. The only thing we don't know is when God is going to come to do this. We know he's coming to do it. We just don't know when. Well, what am I supposed to do about that? Well, let me quote to you another passage from Isaiah. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let you who are wicked forsake your way and let you who are unrighteous forsake your thoughts and come to the Lord. Come to the Lord and he will have mercy on you. Come to God, he says, and he will abundantly pardon you. Are you listening this morning? 
There's not an ounce. There's not an ounce of ungodliness in this world that will escape the severe judgment of God. But if you will seek him while he is near, if you will believe in him while you have the opportunity, if you will come to God, he will give your life mercy. He will abundantly share with you grace. And it is not judgment you have to fear. It is heaven that you anticipate. It is his righteousness and glory that you look forward to. For you have been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you saved this morning? I leave you with these two things. First, bring your rebellion to God and experience His abundant mercy. Rebels can get right with God. (laughs) We just talked about this in Samuel on Wednesday nights. Abner. Abner been fighting for the wrong team. Saul, he has a change of heart. He says, I want to be on God's side now. I want to be with David. And what did David do is a picture of Jesus Christ. He openly welcomed Abner. Even rebels can find grace in Jesus Christ. If you're rebelling against his word, his holiness, and his authority in your life, I want you to know bring that rebellion to God and find life-changing mercy and grace. And church, be careful. Because they'll come from without, and sometimes they'll rise from within. They're spots in our love feast. They're hidden reeds that if we get too close, we'll destroy the ship. Let's do whatever we can to avoid their dangerous rebellion. Let's bow our heads for prayer together.